there are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Good morning and welcome to Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm filling in for Wolfgang Klein this weekend. Uh, I'm your host, your guest host, Rubina Ahmed Huck, and I'm joined by Jack. Jack, introduce yourself. Well, welcome, Rubina. Uh, Jack Hartle, co-host of uh, Hi-Fi Radio. We've been doing it for two years now, over two years, actually, and I think this is only the second episode that Wolfgang has missed, and both times you've filled in, you've done a great job, so I look forward to, to the show with you. Thank you so much for saying that, and I'm, we have got a really interesting show today. Uh, we're going to be speaking to a lawyer, we're going to be speaking mortgages, we're going to be speaking about back-to-school savings and how we can do better, because we're spending a lot of money at this time getting our kids ready to go back to class. Um, I wanted to ask you, Jack, are are you, uh, do you have kids that are going into to school or are, are you getting them ready to get back into? I'm really, uh, I know my wife is really looking forward to them getting back to school and getting some structure back in their day and our day as well. But uh, yes, uh, I have a uh, grade three, uh, grade one and uh, and also a preschooler. So we're, we're right in the uh, the heart and, and thick of things with getting back to school. And the, like I said, it'll be a, a welcome surprise or welcome uh, event in September. And, and some of the costs associated with sending kids back to school, it can they can be pretty high. I mean, one survey says close to $200 a child uh, we spend getting our kids ready. Does that reflect your family? You've got two kids in school, uh, one that is eventually going to be going to school. I mean, would you see yourself in the next couple of years spending six, seven hundred dollars to get your family ready to get back to class well school supplies i think i was talking to my wife because she actually does the the back to school shopping uh she was saying anywhere from 50 to 100 dollars per school age child with school supplies so the pencil cases and binders and all those types of good things um the other thing she actually mentioned was footwear footwear being uh, an expensive thing you need indoor and outdoor footwear uh so she was estimating about 300 dollars, so 50 dollars uh, per shoe, but you buy indoor and outdoor for the kids. So that's probably one of our bigger expenses, actually. But uh, yeah, there's definitely costs associated with going back to school. Our little one, who's actually in preschool, she goes to a Montessori school, uh, they have to get their uniforms embroidered, which is uh, $200. It's crazy that the uniforms can cost so much money because we know they don't cost that much to create. Right. But because they've got a monopoly on it, I went to a uniform school for high school, and I remember that we had these gray skirts and we had to have a blazer, we had to have um, a certain uh, outfit for gym, like we all had to look the same. And so you were forced to buy from the store and you couldn't just go out and buy gray pants. You had to buy right. from the store. And you knew that they were... They were Pardon the, the, pardon the term, jacking up the prices. <laughs> well, the, the one good thing at the school that we go to is they actually recycle the clothes. So at the end of the year, parents get together and they recognize that some are graduating. Some They're all growing, so they end up passing it down. And then obviously the, the colors don't change. The embroidery doesn't change. So you end up getting a, a bit of a deal that way when you, when you swap with uh, the, some of the older kids. So one of the biggest expenses for me is getting their lunch stuff ready. I've been really... Uh, I really have not been very good at creating a system where they have a lunchbox that they can use. Uh, my daughter broke one. My daughter lost one. Uh, one of them just didn't work. The teacher came to me and said, your daughter can't open this lunchbox. So I keep having to replace it. So I finally, and sometimes I kick myself thinking, you know, I'll go out for dinner with my friends and I'll spend 80 bucks on a bottle of wine. But then I cheap out on the $40 lunchbox. So I finally right. went and bought the expensive lunchbox for both my kids 
um, same price as maybe a bottle of wine at a restaurant. <laughs> and I'm hoping that this is going to last them. It's kind of like those bento boxes. They've got all the different sections. They're really easy for their little hands to open. But still, you know, that's 80 bucks just on lunch boxes. I mean, that can be a really big cost that can add up. I think you're going to be very happy with those. We've been using them for the last three years. Yep. Um, the schools these days uh, tell us that you have to bring back the garbage. So by putting them in those prepackaged sort of boxes that you have there, reduce the amount of garbage. You you actually have sort of the food groups that you're supposed to put in so you can itemize things. Because they've got little pictures. Like Yeah, this is it's not that you actually go. have to use them, but you can actually put your portions in where they're supposed to be, right? So it's uh, I think you'll be very happy with that little investment that you made. So some of the little uh, tidbits that I found about back to school, one uh, survey by Ebates found that one in four parents stress about the cost of kids going back to school. And the one thing that we forget at this time of year is that back to school for, from a retail perspective is the second busiest time for retailers compared to Christmas. So they're out in full force trying to guilt you, trying to inspire you to right. spend more money with the whole must-haves, buy one, get one, this is the hot toy or the hot item for this year. Um, do you feel, encur- like, no, I wouldn't say encouraged, but do you feel tempted to buy more when you go to the mall and you see you know, the retailers really marketing heavily to parents to buy stuff? Well, it's not really my department in terms of back-to-school shopping, so I'm going to say no on that one. But I can, <laughs> I can, I can, I can tell you that right now consumers are spending. Mm-hmm. You look at the market and bringing it back to what Wolfgang and I do. The, the markets, um, consumer discretionary items. This is going back just to Wednesday. Some companies that reported, companies that were uh, in the news. Uh, we had Target. They were up twenty percent. The stock was up twenty percent. Right. So the big U.S. retailer that was up here in Canada and actually. W- uh, yeah, well, yeah. if they failed and then they went back to the U.S. So mm-hmm. they're up 20%. You had Lowe's up 10%. You had Nordstrom's up 5%. Uh, the week before this, uh, we had Walmart. They had good earnings focusing back on retail through online and competing with Amazon. You had Home Depot. So consumers are definitely spending out there, whether it's all you know back to school. Um, it's a very, sign, a very good sign in a, of a healthy economy when you have the consumer who's a 70% of the U.S. GDP spending the, the way they are. And we know consumer confidence is up. People are feeling good. Wage growth is finally ticking up. Uh, we know that unemployment is at a, you know, something like a 40-something year low. Now, not everybody is working in good-paying jobs. Many people have to work two, three jobs just to, you know, make ends meet. But everybody is working, and that generally makes people feel better about spending money. Because if you know that you've got a job, you know that you have money coming in, you're more likely to go to the mall, buy your kids something for back to school, more likely to spend something extra on yourself. And so this is a time, and a lot of people just even if you don't have kids are refreshing themselves for the for the new year yeah you look at uh, you look at the companies that i talked about consumers are spending and that like i said is a very healthy sign in the economy everyone right now in the markets is concerned about u.s recession i think there's a probably 35 percent probability of a u.s recession in the next year and that's certainly ticked up since the beginning of the year but like i said with a healthy consumer as long as they're not over indebted which i would argue a lot of canadians are um, it, it spells good things for the markets ahead, um, although we've had a bit of a, a bumpy uh, bumpy August. Okay, well, we're going to take a break here on Hi-Fi Radio. When we come back, we're going to talk about the expense of post-secondary education. We spend a lot of time on elementary school, but that's also a big uh, cost for parents and for young people. Uh, we'll be right back. Uh, stay with us. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? 
Welcome back and good morning. This is Hi-Fi Radio. I am your guest host, Rubina Ahmed Haq. I'm filling in for the irreplaceable Wolfgang Klein. I'm so honored that he asked me to to fill his big shoes and uh, be the hostess this uh, this morning. Uh, we are on Global News Radio 640 Toronto and I'm joined by my co-host Jack. And we've been talking about back to school expenses, how much it costs parents and young people just to get ready for September, whether you're going away to kindergarten or going away to university, uh, the cost can be pretty high. Uh, post-secondary students uh, on average right now in Canada are graduating with more than $27,000 in debt. And that's with an undergraduate degree. It's not with a master's or going on to do further education. It's with an undergraduate. And as we know, in today's environment, in today's economy, you need higher education now to command those higher salaries, to go and get those type of jobs that are going to pay you the big bucks. So a lot of those young people already saddled with $27,000 in debt are now thinking, I'm going to go do my MBA, which is going to cost more. I'm going to go into graduate school, which is going to cost more. Um, do you remember when you graduated, Jack, Like, how, if you had debt and how you managed it uh, way back then? <laughs> way back then. Um, I know that I graduated with very minimal amount of debt. I went to Western University, so I was away from school, which is a, an, an additional expense. If you stay actually home and go to school locally, uh, whether it's university, community, college, you probably... Which I don't recommend, though. You don't I, get the experience, but yeah. from a financial point of view, you're going to save probably $10,000 a year. So that is... Uh, th- there are some exceptional schools. Like, if you live in Waterloo, you can. there's Waterloo and there's obviously Lower... You know what right. I mean? Like, you don't really have to travel, but you don't get that experience. It's like Even saying, in Toronto, you've got York, Toronto, Ryerson. Yeah. You've got three great schools at your doorstep. Right. So it's, it's an opportunity to save some money. Uh, I'm in your camp, Urbina. Um, I went away to university. I enjoyed uh, my time there. It's a, it's a time to grow, not only in education, but also personally and, and develop. Um, but no, I did not go away with a lot of debt. I worked in a family business, which helped out a lot. Right. Uh, I actually had a, um, uh, a scholarship from the Peterborough Peets when I played uh, hockey there. So they wow. helped me out with some tuition. Um, so between that and work through the summers, I was able to cover off most of the costs. Yeah, I think I remember I graduated from university in 1999. And I think I had seven or $8,000 in student debt, and then I had a line of credit, which my parents had opened for me, that was maxed out at six grand. So right. total at that time about twelve thousand dollars. Now the the line of credit was the part that I think that I was a bit irresponsible about because it was co-signed by my mom. I didn't really feel right. as responsible for it, uh, but I definitely had to pay it. I mean, when I got when I graduated and I got back home, my dad was like, "You." they knew how much I had ran it up. They're like, you need to start paying this debt down because your mom is paying interest on the money that you borrowed and right. we are going to charge you for it. Um, so, But that, that is part of the educational process, right? Understanding, being able to budget, being able to manage debt, being able to develop credit and manage credit uh, like you did. You obviously found out that uh, I know some students, when I went away to school, they got a credit card, uh, maybe five or 500, maybe $1,000 on the credit card, something like that. With, yeah. Yeah. So they thought it was free money. It was blown within the first week or two. Uh, $500 at the bar. is really easy to spend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they thought it was free money, then realized they actually had to pay it back. <laughs> and then mom and dad had to step in to make sure that they didn't uh, didn't get themselves into some, some credit trouble. So um, it's an opportunity, like I said, not only to learn academically, but also you know in finance and personally as well. What do you think about these credit card companies that arrive on campus and get kids to sign up for credit cards? Some of them are just turned 18 right. or I mean you have to be 18 to sign up so they're you know they're just starting their adult life um, maybe they haven't had much financial uh, experience they have very little financial literacy skills right what do you think about these companies that sort of uh, 
get kids, well, I shouldn't say their kids, they're young adults, to sign up and give them a free Frisbee, or I don't know what you give them right now, but give them some free gift to sign up. Well, I do think that's part of parents' responsibility to to go through with their kids and say, you know what, um, help them with their first credit card. You don't want them applying for 10 different credit cards on campus, because guess what? That's actually going to affect your credit rating. Right. And when you go to apply and get a mortgage or a credit line down the road, you may, even though you pay off your debt, the fact that you've applied for so many of these credit cards will actually be detrimental for credit down the road, it actually may cost you more. So as opposed, if you have a bad credit rating, as opposed to getting a mortgage at 3%, you may end up paying 4 or 5%. And I think that if you are a parent listening and your young, your child goes away to university, calls you and says, hey mom, I just signed up for a credit card. Rather than finger wagging at them, use this as a teaching opportunity to say, okay, you've got a credit card. This is how it works. I'm going to email you a calculator that helps you understand how the interest rate on a credit card works and so that you can understand what your responsibility is and how fast that uh, that credit card interest can accumulate and how much more you can owe after a few months if you fail to pay your bill and how it affects your credit rating. Like Just arm them with information rather than saying, how dare you do that? You shouldn't have done that. You're not ready for a credit card. Because if they signed up on their own, you know, they, they, they use their own merit to get it, um, you should respect that decision and help them rather than make them feel bad about it. Yeah, the other point with education too, and in my case, uh, my parents never had an RESP for me or any of my siblings as far as I know. And I actually just came across uh, an article this week saying that about three quarters of Canadians don't have an RESP for their kids or have a very minimal RESP for their kids. So um, they're accumulating some of this debt because they're paying for university somewhat inefficiently. You you have $7,200 of government grant that's available to you. Mm -hmm. It's just you know, over the years, get a process working where you regularly contribute to an RESP for your kids, get that money working for you, plus the government grant, and it'll somewhat ease the burden and help your kids out getting through this whole process so they don't accumulate that twenty-eight dollars or $30,000 of debt as an average Canadian. So just as Wolfgang often talks about the merits of RRSPs and how we should max them out every year, if you can afford to, max out the RESP. And I believe that you should do it in January. So you should be right now in 2019 saving for the 2020 year. And then as soon as January 1st hits, you put that $2,500 in, you get the $500 Canada Savings Grant right away, you invest that entire $3,000 and it has a whole 12 months to grow rather than taking it in drips along the year. Now, I know that that's not financially possible for some families, but if you have the money, why not get the money in right away and get that grant in full right away and then invest that entire amount rather than doing it in drips and drabs. But we have to take a break. Uh, We will be back. We are going to be speaking to uh, a mortgage broker and a lawyer talking about divorce and all the expenses involved with that. We are Hi-Fi Radio here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Stay tuned. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. And welcome back. My name is Rubina Ahmed Huck. This is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm filling in for Wolfgang Klein, who is, I believe, away at the cottage, right, Jack? Just having a nice little summer break. Well-deserved, I think. He is taking a break, but I'll tell you, he's uh, he's keeping an eye on the Wolfpack. He has uh, been in communication all week. We've actually been doing a bit of trading, uh, taking some profits in a few names and, and trimming some of the names that really haven't worked for us this summer so we can you know look to, to build on some... Sh- 
uh, stocks or companies that have relative strength, especially in this low interest rate environment where that is very slow growth. Because right now the market is paying up for growth. We have some positions in that space, but we just want to continue to add to winners. And speaking of interest rates, we think about mortgages. And speaking of cottage country, I believe, Drew, we've reached you in cottage country. Drew Donaldson uh, is our first guest. He is a mortgage broker and managing partner at SafeBridge Financial Group. Uh, welcome to the show, Drew. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great uh, to be on. I, you know, let's ask you that first question about low interest rates. It looks like money is going to stay cheap for a long time. What are you predicting and how are you getting your clients ready? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have probably seen, but rates have been plummeting around the world, which is uh, which is good news for mortgages, um, as long as things stay healthy out there. So at the beginning of the year, you're looking at a five-year fixed rate around 3.69 to 3.79. And today, um, depending whether it's a purchase or refinance, I mean, you can get them as low as 2.59, anywhere from 2.59 to 2.89. I just fixed, we just bought a house, we just fixed it at 2.69. And in fact, a week later, it dropped to 2.59. As you know, as a mortgage broker, we still tried to see if we could get that lower rate, but we were not able to do it once you've signed on the dotted line. That's what you've got for five years. And I would say that is really one of the bullish cases that our strategist, Tony Dwyer, keeps talking about. As interest rates come down, that, that savings that uh, clients have, that consumers have, it goes right to their bottom line so they can spend it on the discretionary items that we've been talking about in the last couple of segments, whether it's back to school or vacations or whatever the case. Those are, it's a very positive thing for the economy, although low interest rates show us, you know, they just tell us that we're in a slow growth environment. Hopefully we avoid a recession. Everyone calls it or is calling for a soft landing. Whether or not that comes through, we'll see. But uh, low interest rates for a consumer, uh, like Drew said, as long as you maintain your job, it's actually positive for the economy. And Drew, you know, I'm a personal finance journalist, so I talk a lot about um, how people can better manage their money, how people can better understand their financial situation. Um, if someone comes to you and wants to renew a mortgage right now, looks at that low interest rate and says, hey, I want to refinance for a little bit more, be able to maybe buy a cottage or maybe do something else with my money. How do you, how do you sort of guide them through that kind of decision making? Yeah, we go through the strategy uh, and the full holistic approach on what they're looking to do, but whether buy a rental property or top up RSPs, things like that. Um, so it has to make sense from from the strategy standpoint. But then after that, if it's just a refinance to save money, we look at the numbers. I mean, the numbers don't lie. If you're in a three and a half percent rate, uh, we can get you a two point six nine rate, and then the penalty is X with so many years remaining on the term. Um, you know, if, if it's a $5,000 penalty and we're going to save you 15000 a lot of times it makes sense for people to do the refinance. Explain to those people that don't understand, like, if you have a five-year fixed mortgage, you're four years in, you've got one year to go, and you want to break it today because you see those low rates, um, how does the bank calculate those costs? And is there a way that uh, someone who has a mortgage can go in and sort of estimate how much it's going to cost them if they wanted to break that mortgage and go into a lower rate uh, mortgage today? Yeah, unfortunately, the big banks uh, who are lending partners and then also other lenders as well, they have a very complicated, it's called an interest rate differential formula, IRD, for fixed rates. Um, it, w- it would honestly take me probably eight minutes to go through the formula and actually break it down for somebody. So you can imagine a first-time home buyer, or even you know a retiree or anyone looking at their own mortgage, um, they can't just calculate it on their own. So unfortunately, on the fixed rate side, it is a little bit more complicated, and it actually um, matters what day you you close, because if rates move in either direction, 
up or down a few days before closing of the, uh, paying out the mortgage, uh, your penalty can change. And then on the variable side, it's very transparent. It's three months interest pretty much across the board, uh, three months interest based on the uh, amount of mortgage remaining on your term. So it's, uh, it's fairly straightforward that way. And sometimes it's a little bit, people think variable is risky, but sometimes uh, it's actually not as risky as the fixed rate because you don't have the big penalty hanging over your head. And Drew, I just wanted to go back to you as well. Like in the low interest rate environment that we're talking about with rates actually getting lower here, um, the government implemented the, the B20 and a bunch of stress tests and additional regulations. And they, I think they really affected first-time homebuyers. Um, are they easing some of those regulations with the fact that uh, interest rates are actually going lower as opposed to going higher? Yeah, unfortunately, we haven't seen it uh, proportionately to how much rates have come down. The stress test number has only dropped down to 5.14%. To qualify, um, which isn't which isn't enough. I mean, it should be down. I would say around four six four, maybe even lower than that, based on where rates are today and and where the stress test number used to be. Uh, but then you've, we do have some of our lending partners, like uh, you know Duca Financial and some of these credit unions that aren't governed by OSFI, and we can actually qualify based on the contract rate. Now, their contract rate's a little bit higher than some of the other lenders because, you know, when, when you have a unique product like that, you don't have to be as competitive on rate. But if someone's on the borderline and they don't qualify on the stress test, um, we can shuffle it to one of these credit unions and still get them qualified. And it's the, the credit unions that they're able to do this because they're not governed by OFSI, they're governed by their own independent regulator. Is that uh, the reason for that? Exactly correct, yeah. Okay. And I mean, one thing I, I like to point out is that the stress test itself hasn't changed. It's that the Bank of Canada posted rate has fallen. So you are now uh, able to uh, do the stress test based on a lower interest rate. But you're right. That rate is still quite high compared to what people are actually getting out in the market right now. Uh, it's about 3% higher than the, the average fixed rate that banks are offering. You, you would think that they would have a stress test that reflects current market conditions and doesn't just reflect current market conditions, but can also adapt to future market conditions. So so you don't want to set something and forget it. You want to obviously monitor it and change it as the economy changes, as interest rates change, uh, as lending standards change. Okay, well, we yeah, have to take... Yeah. Sorry, Drew, we have to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to pick up this conversation. This is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We will be right back. Money. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, money. more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back. This is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I am your guest host, Rubina ahmed Huck, filling in for Wolfgang Klein. And we have Jack here with us as our co-host, as always. Not everything has changed. Um, we've been speaking to Drew Donaldson, mortgage broker and managing partner at SafeBridge Financial Group. Uh, I just cut you off there right before the break. What was it that you wanted to say? Could you Could you let our listeners know? Yeah, I just wanted to add on that stress test uh, comment where the original... Um, plan or strategy behind that from the government was that it was going to be 2% above the contract rate. So when rates were at 3.49, it was like, okay, you qualify at 5.49, you know, everyone kind of understands that. Now all of a sudden rates are at 2.69. To me, the stress test rate should be 2% above and be at 4.69. Unfortunately, they, they actually make whatever the Bank of Canada posted rate is which is currently a 5.14, uh, and, and like you said earlier, it's almost 
3%, not 2% now that people are having to, uh, to, to qualify for a mortgage. Uh, another, I just wanted to switch gears a bit because we've been talking about back to school and the expense of that for parents sending their kids back to school, whether they're going to kindergarten or away to university. Um, speaking of university students, talk to us a little bit, Drew, about how difficult it can be to get a mortgage on a property that you are going to be renting, renting out to students. Yeah, so it's um, it's always a gray area. So if a parent is buying a second home um, that their child might live in, um, throughout the underwriting, it's fairly simple. We can get very competitive interest rates. Um, same with cottages, you know, very similar things. Second homes. As soon as you declare to the underwriting center that it's going to be a rental property and it's going to be rented to students, um, it's a huge no-no. A lot of lenders back away from the deal uh, right away, and they just don't want their security to be um, what they think might be compromised when they lend on the asset. So so when the parent buys the house and they have one of their children uh, go into the house, um, and then maybe they have two or three of their friends that they're renting to, and it is a good way to you know build some equity i think because the real estate over you know a five to ten year period probably gonna do okay plus you get some rent on that as well um but they have their child in there and they're doing the renting is that actually considered a, a second home or is it considered a rental property because you have a person in your family there but they are renting to other students yeah so it's considered a second home um as soon as they get a, a rental agreement signed now it's been turned into a rental property um so when someone's you know, kind of asking us some of the questions on how these things do, what we like to do is just educate them on the rules and say, okay, if you're buying it for your for your son or daughter to live in during university, no problem there, we'll get you good financing. Now, after closing, you know, six months, even two years after closing, if you go, you know what, we might as well rent a little bit of this to the students, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much fine. Uh, underwriting's been done, deals already closed. People change their intent on properties all the time. But if your intent is to rent it out literally the day of the purchase uh, closing, at that point, you know, you'd have to disclose to the underwriter to rental. And like I said, a lot of banks, a lot of lending partners do not like student rentals. So the, the lending partners, what, what's the issue with the student rentals that the students don't pay their rent? Because I, I would think that the, the credit quality of the parent was probably going to be okay. So is it damages that they're concerned about? Is it, uh, what, what's the big problem with student rentals? Yeah, I would say there's a, there's a, a few things. There's damages, there's uh, liability, um, you know, maybe not paying the rent. I mean, because regardless whether we need the rental income to qualify or not, it uh, doesn't really change the status of student rentals. Um, but even just, just having like a stigma uh, with the property on resale. So, you know, a bunch of students have been in there for four or five years, and then all of a sudden you're trying to sell the property. Um, the lenders are a little concerned that it might not fetch what maybe the market market rates are in the area. Okay, and is there data that supports that, that student rentals have been a problem, they've been difficult to sell, they, you know, they, they are difficult to collect rent from? I mean, wh- what are the banks basing this on? Yeah, I mean, our lending partners, that's what they say. The lending partners say back, uh, you know, 2008, and uh, even before that, whenever there's been a slight downturn, that those that those student rentals have, have taken a hit. And I think all of them on their books have had the odd, you know, call it a fire or things that just randomly happen that they've been uh, kind of scared them off. But it's frustrating. I think that's actually an opportunity in the marketplace where a lending partner could come out and say, okay, 
especially some of these um, luxury student rentals where it's either a really nice house that's been renovated or some of these condos that are coming out near Waterloo and and uh, Kitchener, it's like, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for a lending partner to come in and say, we'll do 20, 25% down, student rentals, best interest rates, um, because really everyone else is backed away from it. Is there any like shadow banking, any secondary lenders that uh, that are out there, maybe not the traditional banks and credit unions uh, that are sort of stepping up to the plate that you're seeing, Drew? Yep. Yeah, we can still get it done. Um, uh, there's a few, I won't mention them by name, but there's a few that we did at 399 one-year fixed rate, and we did one at a three-year fixed 4.39% uh, rate on a student rental, 20% down in the Windsor area. So there's still lenders that are going to come to the table. It's just if you're looking for the, the 299 rate at some of the big banks, um, they're likely not going to do it. And they're also looking for you to put up maybe a little bit more money up front if you're, if you're putting it towards the student housing, I guess, as well. Yeah, there's times they ask for 35% down, correct? Drew, we have about 30 seconds. I want to ask you quickly about uh, the Danish bank offering negative interest rates on mortgages. So you're actually paid to take a mortgage out. What's your reaction and could that possibly happen in Canada? Yeah, I mean, I've I've actually had a few people approach me on that and ask if it's coming. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, it's just the spread, right? If if the government's going to loan them a negative 1% and they're going to give you the mortgage and and pay you at uh, 0.5%, they're taking the 50 basis point spread and and still making money. So I can't see the government, uh, especially the bank, like, the Bank of Canada. I mean, they're they're more conservative. Um, But, you know, never say never. We've seen other things in the past where, if things ever did get too ugly, um, they could always start lending to the to the banks and other lending partners at negative one percent, and then you'd see the mortgage rates do the same thing. We just saw some inflation numbers here in Canada too that were, I think, pretty healthy in and around the two percent range. So as long as you have inflation and not deflation out there, I'd be pretty surprised to see negative interest rates, especially on mortgages. Right. Yeah. Well, Drew, it's been uh, really nice to speak to you today about all things mortgages, from student loans to negative interest rates to uh, just generally uh, the frustration with the stress tests. Uh, Thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Take care. Take care. That was Drew Donaldson. He's a mortgage broker and managing partner at SafeBridge Financial Group. We were talking to him about all things mortgages. We're going to take a quick break here now on Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Making money is the best. So how do you make more money? Come on back after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back. This is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We have now with us in studio Michael Cochran. He is a divorce and family lawyer at Browdy Thorning LLP. And we are going to be talking about all things divorce and the cost of divorce that sometimes we don't even think about. We just think two people get separated, you sell the house, you divide the money, but there's so much more involved, isn't there, Michael? There is, and it's called wealth destruction. (laughs) Well, explain (laughs) what that means, wealth destruction. Well, you know, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that um, when you are separating and and, uh, heading out to set up two new households, 
uh, particularly if you're in, in GTA, for example, going out and trying to buy two homes in a market where most people can't afford to buy one home is going to either drive you into rental accommodations or out of the GTA altogether to buy a new home. RSPs are divided, pensions are divided, incomes are divided. It, it is a very, very serious consequence for a family to get divorced. So, so with all these financial consequences, and Wolfgang and I do talk to them with our clients all the time. We say, you know, you know it's very expensive to get divorced. And uh, before you do it, you obviously want to know what you're sort of getting into. Do you counsel your clients obviously before they storm out the door, slam the door and say, we're finished? Oh, you know, in a perfect world, uh, my clients call me well in advance of getting separated. They will say, look, things aren't going well at home. Sometimes it's because they've had a conversation with a financial uh, advisor and they say things aren't going well at home. What would happen if I separated tomorrow? If they come in with uh, e- even the basic financial information about what they, what they own, what they owe, Set that out. We can figure out in about 45 minutes. And what they make is a big one too, What obviously. they make. Uh, we can figure out in about 45 minutes how this is all going to turn out. You know, custody of kids, it's pretty obvious sometimes how that's going to turn out. Same thing with child support and spousal support. So we can tell people, if you make this move, it's going to cost you X. And sometimes... That sends them to a less expensive alternative, which is marriage counseling. I was going to say, maybe some mediation in there, yeah. (laughs) Have you had that happen? People come in, they find out it's going to cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars to get divorced. (laughs) Maybe it's not so bad. (laughs) You know, you're looking good all of a sudden. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know what? Marriage counseling is a fraction of a divorce lawyer's cost. So, Um, What about Fluffy and Spotty? I'm thinking of pet names. These are terrible pet names, aren't they? They are terrible names. Yes. (laughs) But the, you know what? Pets pets are very emotional, right? You're yeah, talking about money, and then you now you're talking about pets. Pets are very emotional. And you only if you only have one dog, who gets it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is this is a very hot topic uh, among uh, divorce lawyers because if you just read the court decisions uh, that are you know typically from across Canada, uh, most of the legal conclusion is is that pets are property. So whoever owns the piece of property gets to keep the piece of property. There's no joint custody of dogs and cats. There's no consideration of what's best for the children in the family for that particular pet. There's no consideration of what's best for the pet. Uh, You know, pets, most people would say, have emotional lives that need to be considered, but divorce law says they're property. Clients don't like to hear that. They want to hear something that's going to take into consideration their children, their feelings for the pet, and it becomes a very emotional issue for them in the divorce. Have you actually dealt with clients dealing with separation of pet? Oh, yes, and there are people who've nonetheless signed agreements that have joint custody of dogs, where the dogs are going back and forth between homes weekend by weekend, sharing of pet expenses, sharing of vet bills, which are considerable sometimes. I was going to say, it might be cheaper just to actually get a new dog than go through the whole expense of getting that big contract set up to, <laughs> to, to divide it up. <laughs> try, try saying that yeah, to exactly. a person who owns the dog. That's like saying to someone, get a new child. Oh, you you only get to see your daughter half the time? Why don't you just get another daughter? That's literally almost saying the same thing about the dog. Yeah, and you know, to make this more complicated, there are some jurisdictions in the United States, in particular Alaska and Illinois, that have passed uh, laws that say that there should be a different consideration around pets in divorce. And they're really according rights to these uh, pets so that... uh, they're adding an extra complicating factor to considering this pet not as a child, but not as a piece of property either, somewhere in between. 
Can we talk uh, just a second about power of attorney and how uh, that plays into divorce and how it can get messy uh, when you are in a divorce situation, especially if, um, well, you, you talk to me about how, how, how that works. Yeah, so uh, I don't want to be alarmist, but I think we're going to find out in a few years that the biggest fraud of our generation has been the abuse of powers of attorney. We have a generation of uh, people who are older. Well, let's say, you know, I'm in my 60s now. But my parents and, and other people's parents, they have assets left over, homes that need to be managed. They're going into retirement homes. And a child from the family is usually selected uh, and given the power of attorney. We're seeing way too often frequent abuse of those powers of attorney. People using parents' money, to cover their own expenses. And uh, there are some recent cases where people have been removed as powers of attorney because they've abused that right. So that's one problem. In the context of a divorce, here's what happens. You separate and you're on a joint account with your mother or your father. You're going to have to disclose that account or a piece of property, for example, that you own jointly on a financial statement in a divorce. Your separating partner, husband and wife, is going to look at that financial statement and say, I think all the money that's in that joint account is actually your money and it should be shared in the divorce. The defense is going to say, no, 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 that's my, all of that money is my dad's money or that's my mom's money. It shouldn't, I'm holding it in trust. People are going to be sharing information about their parents' assets in the context of their divorce. So so is that when a parent has joint with their child on an account, or is that when the, the child is a power of attorney taking care of their parent that you're talking about there, Michael? Well, it could be both, because okay. uh, if you have the power of attorney, you are likely, and let's say you're looking after your parents' expenses uh, at a retirement home, right? you may be on the joint account simply to make the transfer monthly to pay the bills. Sometimes you're getting extra care, you know, spa treatments or an extra bath, or you need some wheelchair assistance to get down to the the dining room, all of those expenses, you may just be simply on the account as a joint account holder to to pay those bills monthly at the retirement home. Yeah, we've seen clients too, they actually put properties uh, joint with their parents and it's just to avoid probate. And you're talking about one and a half percent. To avoid one and a half percent probate, they put their name on a cottage or a house or, or the likes. And if they separate... They're joint, and that property could potentially be split up, and that's a, that's a significant, significant financial error. Uh, absolutely, because people describe this as estate planning. You know, oh, we don't want uh, to have to worry they about forgot, doing a conveyance. They forgot the divorce planning. Yeah, the divorce planning. <laughs> well, guys, uh, we need to divorce this conversation for just a minute. Uh, just take a quick break. We're going to come back. We want to talk a little bit more about power of attorney and also just, you know, when enough is enough. Maybe a couple listening right now is trying to decide whether they need to walk away from their marriage. Uh, Michael, what would be your... Uh, advice for them. So this is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We will be right back. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. You say you're looking for someone to pick you up each time you fall. And we're back on Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. We're talking to Michael Cochran, a divorce lawyer. And, you know, I uh, promote it as when's enough enough, enough is enough when you should walk away from marriage. But really, you're referring to when is enough is enough when it comes to spousal support, alimony, things like this. I mean, if you've already got millions of dollars each, do you still need to pay the other spouse any kind of uh, alimony? 
Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Clients don't need any help figuring out when enough is enough emotionally or psychologically. They they know when to go most of the time. But on the financial side, there have been some interesting things that have happened. And I'll just give you a, a very dramatic example. British Columbia recently, there was a case, a couple split up. They divided $50 million, $25 million for the wife, $25 million for the husband. The wife asked for spousal support or alimony, uh, as people sometimes describe it, on top of that. Now, most people would say, why, why would someone need support when they have $25 million? The court did an analysis, and they said that still wasn't enough for her, that she should also receive tens of thousands of dollars per month in spousal support on top of it. That's at one end of the spectrum. Now, at the other end, there was a case in Ontario where a couple split up, each got about three or four million dollars. Claim for spousal support on top of that, court decided yes, wife still needed spousal support on top of that. So this question of when is enough capital in the hands of a spouse enough to say, I don't need spousal support, I'm financially independent, this is a tough one for lawyers to figure out and for clients, but the answer seems to be $25 million may not be enough. <laughs> so what, $40 million, $50 million? Like how much? Is, is there a point where you don't have to pay alimony or is it basically baked in the cake that, listen, if you divide assets, you're still going to end up on the hook paying that spousal support? Well, the way that we typically do it is we would say, let's look to see what each person has and let's assume that what you take out in capital assets, you're going to invest and try to create sort of a private pension for yourself. Right. So you invest that and you create a return for yourself. So let's say you invest three or four million dollars and you generate $150,000 a year income for yourself. Is that enough to meet your needs? It usually comes back to a question of what do you need? Okay. Well, we have to say goodbye to you, Michael. Sorry for that very short segment. Um, <laughs> it has been such a pleasure uh, co-hosting with you, Jack, today on Hi-Fi Radio. Thanks so much to Wolfgang Klein for inviting me uh, to come on again. Uh, Michael, uh, just to let people know where to find you and who you are, Michael Cochran is a divorce and family lawyer here in Toronto. Am I right? That's right. Uh, at Browdy Thorning, LLP. And uh, we were talking all things money when it comes to divorce. Obviously, the emotional side is one, but it's also a big uh, personal finance uh, decision that you have to make. Make too when you are divorcing, how you're going to divide those finances. Uh, Jack, any final words for our listeners before we go? No, Michael, I just really appreciate you walking us through that. And uh, like you said, it's a, a very, very detrimental to your finances if you do decide to divorce. Sometimes it is the right decision emotionally and, and for a, a number of other reasons, but it's certainly uh, something you have to consider on the financial side. And I think, like you said, before you make that decision, it's good to consult an expert. Be strategic. I'd say a financial advisor and a divorce lawyer were the two people that you should be calling uh, if you're thinking of calling it quits with your spouse because those are the people that are going to help you. Uh, thanks so much to our listeners. Uh, thanks so much for gracious, graciously letting me sit in today. Uh, my name is Rubina Ahmed Huck. Uh, if you need to find me, you can find me at alwayssavemoney.com. Uh, this is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Uh, thank you and see you next time. Listening to Hi Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi Fi Radio for the love of money. We'll see you next week.